Good morning. Now will you turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9. And I will read starting in verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 50. Mark 9, 9 through 9, 50. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, And he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means 
loses reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and you were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray, Lord, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and soften hearts to know, believe in, trust in, and love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, apply him to us so that we might be strengthened this morning, the rest of this week, and the rest of our lives in him, that we might be strengthened as he's called us here to die to self. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week, Pastor Mike preached on the first uh, eight verses of Mark, chapter 9, which there, if you remember, described in glorious detail a glimpse of the glory of Christ. He was transfigured into wonderful brightness as the Father himself echoed from the heavens his eternal love and delight in his only begotten Son. This mountaintop moment was literally heaven on earth. Even what were arguably the two greatest saints in heaven, Elijah and Moses, were present there with the transfigured and glorious Christ. The scene was stunning. This morning, as we look at the rest of chapter 9, we come down now off of the mountain, and as we do so, we we seem to, to step back into the valley of this fallen world. We enter back into the shadows of mere humanity, flesh and blood, weakness, sickness, doubts, and fears. Ultimately, we step back into the reality of suffering. But it seems to me that as we do so, we we gain a completely new perspective on what suffering is. The transfiguration of the mountaintop has changed some things as we progress through the narrative and valley of Mark. For instance, one of the big differences that we'll see now throughout the rest of this gospel is that the miracles and the healings pretty much stop. There's two more. What we begin to get, though, are are long stretches of deep, deep teaching. But the biggest difference is that Jesus is now constantly bringing up, talking about, and focused on the climax of his ministry, the looming cross, his death. In fact, that's at the heart of this very chapter here. Look there again in verses 30 through 32. His main teaching, his kind of all-consuming focus right now is on the cross. Verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Now that Jesus has been transfigured, and and we as the readers have, have peaked behind the curtain of glory, if you will, the suffering of Christ now stares us in the face in almost every remaining page. In other words, we've seen 
what the future glory will be like on the mountaintop. It's awesome. Telling us now, though, Christ is telling us that the suffering of the cross must come before the beauty of glory. Before the crown has to come the cross. That's what the first part of this passage is all about. Look there at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. His glory, his eternal transcendence and beauty wouldn't make an ounce of sense until Jesus had died. In one sense, you kind of see that in verse 10, right? They, they, they kept questioning, what is this rising from the dead mean? And here's what they didn't get. In the grand scheme of God's redemptive purpose, the Son of God, the one who is life and has all life within himself, must succumb to and be overtaken by death. Life must die. Why? Because in the end, this is the only way that death will die. In the end, the only way to bring a world filled with death into a new world filled with life and glory is to allow the author of all life himself to be overcome by death. And here's why. Because he can't stay dead. He won't. He's God. He'll rise to life again. And in his resurrection, in his bursting forth out of the grave, he'll have death itself in a tight grip around its throat, giving it the first death blow. As the Puritan John Owen put it, in the death of Christ, we begin to see the death of death. Now, because they didn't get this, though, they ask Jesus about something that they think they do know. Uh, they, they know that the last prophet in the Old Testament, the, the, the prophet Malachi, prophesied about a time when the Messiah will come, a great and glorious day, no doubt. And in that prophecy, Malachi says Elijah will come just before, right, to usher in the Messiah. So the disciples are scratching their heads here saying, what, Jesus, the Messiah, dying? I, I don't get it. We, we just saw you shining like the sun in full glory. We just saw the prophet Elijah. This is it. This is the last and final day when the, the kingdom of glory will be ushered in. We've made it. We're here. Jesus, what are you talking about death for? And Jesus answered them in verse 12 and 13 by saying basically, yes, Elijah does come. John the Baptist came as the new Elijah to usher in my kingdom. And guess what? Look there in verse 13. What happened to him is going to happen to me. No glory without suffering. They killed him, they're going to kill me. No crown without the cross. So as they continue to come down the mountain, they see before them this this mob surrounding the other disciples, and, and they're all arguing Apparently a man had brought his son to the disciples, a boy who's been possessed by an evil spirit. It's made him deaf, mute, and, and, and violently convulsed into, into seizures. And the disciples can't heal the boy. They, they, they can't cast out this devil. The scene is no doubt cast into stark contrast with the one just before, right? Before was a mountain filled with glory. The voice of God the presence of great prophets from old. 
And now here below is the bickering unbelief of Pharisees, the damaging and destructive work of Satan himself, the sadness of a helpless father, and the suffering of a child. And yet, the stark contrast is being used by Mark, I think, to highlight still that that great theme of Christ's message. As Jesus descends the mountain, leaving the presence of his Father in glory, he, he now enters into the muck of our existence. A picture of that greater descent from heaven itself as he descends not only into our world and our presence, but into death itself. Again, true glory must come through suffering. The issue seems to be the same, though, right? They, they don't get it. You see this frustration of Jesus in verse 19. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You might be asking, why is Jesus frustrated here? I think the answer comes in that small adjective, faithless. Not only are they not really believing in Christ and his ministry to suffer on their behalf, They're ultimately not believing in the Father. You see this in verse 29 and 30. After Jesus casts out the Spirit, the disciples ask, well, well, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus says plainly, you didn't pray. In other words, you don't believe. Unfaithful. Only people who really believe go to God in prayer. When you believe in yourself... You try and do things in your own strength. That's what the disciples try to do, and it didn't work. When you walk in humility, in honest weakness, and when you rest upon and believe in God alone, well, you pray. You ask him for his help, his grace, his guiding wisdom. Jesus is telling the disciples here, he's telling the crowd, he's telling us, this valley of death you are all living in, this, this land east of Eden, away from the mountain and its glory, It's this way with demons and all because you don't believe. So what's the answer? Verse 23. All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. First, this is an absolutely amazing request. Help my unbelief. Friends, Do you pray that prayer? I mean, when you put your head down at night and realize you haven't prayed once throughout the day, you haven't read God's living word, had it read to you at all, you've welcomed sin with open arms, I hope you don't pray, oh God, give me rest tonight, thank you for my day, so on and so on and so on, checking off the list. No, you should, we all should, cry out with this father here, help my unbelief. Help me. My life is a running track record of unbelief. And oh God, how I need your help. Only you can change my heart to believe in you, to enjoy you, to love you, and to follow after you. All things are possible for you, oh God. I believe that you can make me believe. That's the first answer to our unbelief. There's something else here. Another answer, a little bit more subtle. Look there in verses 25 through 27. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So through the exorcism of this child, the the spirit's departure was so violent that to the watching crowd, it looked as if the child had died. But it's what Mark writes there in verse 27 that I think it's important. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The word used there is the same word for resurrection, which signals to us, the readers, that the child is is being described here in imagery of what Jesus has been talking about all along, his death and resurrection, right? Jesus is headed for suffering far worse, taking within himself impurity and sinfulness far worse than any demon, the impurity of all our sin. And Jesus will give up his spirit and die in his death, taking the penalty for our sin, hearing the rebuking silence and wrath of the Father. And ultimately, Jesus will be lifted up and then will arise and be resurrected on our behalf and ascend into glory to sit at the right hand of the Father, there interceding on the behalf of all those who trust in him. Here then is the second answer to our unbelief. Jesus' death and resurrection. The the suffering of Christ and, and the resurrection of Christ, in other words, the gospel, is what can change our unbelief and turn it into true and living faith. Jesus is inviting us here to consider the very real good news of his life, death, and resurrection. And and in that message, as we focus on it, trust in it, and meditate upon it, in that teaching, we begin to be changed by that very truth. You see that because he repeats that teaching in the very next three verses, right? Verse 30, as they went on from there and passed through Galilee, he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he's killed after three days, he will rise. This was the central focus of Jesus Christ. The fast approaching cross on which he came to die, so that in his death, he might redeem men and women from the snare of death. Redeem us from being ensnared in sin, which leads to death. Of course, as we see in verse 32, they still didn't get it. Even though Christ's life was now focused on the cross, it's evident that the minds of the disciples were still focused on glory, on greatness. They still didn't grasp that true glory would only come through bearing a cross. And it seems that the rest of this chapter is now taken up by Mark to show us just how true disciples, true followers of Christ, must walk the same path as Christ if ever were to enter into his glory with him. Because the truth is, even though Jesus bore the ultimate cross to take away our sins and rescue us from death, if we're ever to follow him rightly, we too must take up our cross. Jesus has already told us this, hasn't he? I remember what Mike preached on two weeks ago, back in chapter 8, verses 34 through 35. Let me read those verses again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Oh, what a serious warning that is. Especially today when, when glory can be so easily had here and now. It seems to me that Jesus spends the rest of chapter 9 showing us what a life of taking up the cross looks like. What a life of denying ourselves 
dying to self ultimately looks like. Friends, it, it, it looks like dying. You know that song by Show Baraka? It says, today is a good day to die. That's true for us as Christians. Every day today is a good day to die. Why? One, we're not greater than our master. Two, contrary to what your heart wants and to what the world is constantly teaching us, this life is not ultimately about you. It's about loving God and loving and serving others is more important than yourself. And three, because true Christians need to deny sinful passions of the flesh. That's basically what we see in the remaining passages here. Three ways describing how we, like Christ, must bear the cross. In verses 33 through 37, we see the disciples and their worldly minds still focused on greatness and glory. Look there in verse 34. For on the way they had begun arguing with one another about who is the greatest could you imagine that conversation? In one sense, you, you can't blame them. They'd just seen the glory of Christ visited by two of the greatest Old Testament saints themselves, so their minds are there up on the mountain. Who of us will be greatest in the coming kingdom? But again, they've missed the cross. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, Jesus himself is the ultimate example of this, is he not? He is indeed first among all, the one who will be most highly exalted in the glory to come. But precisely because he was firstly a servant of all. He was last of all. He willingly went to the slaughter as one despised and hated. He silently received the disdain and mockery of mankind and felt the acute displeasure of his father all so that he could serve us. All because he loved us. Christ's glory came through suffering service, and so Jesus is teaching them, he's teaching us, that our inheritance of glory must also come through suffering service. What's interesting is that Jesus completely changes the word here, servant, in his teaching. In those days, you can see this in extra-biblical writings, the word servant, diakonos, was always almost used to describe people in very low standing. People who had no reputation, nothing worthy of conversation. It was a word of disdain for the most part. And here Jesus uses what was an ugly word then, servant, to describe who the greatest in his kingdom will be. It's like going to the best restaurant in Washington, D.C. It'll take a year to get in and a lot of money. And as you sit down, you're sitting among senators. Oh, there's the first lady? Wow. Secret service men all around. And Jesus comes up and sits next to you. And he says, who do you think in this room is the most important, the greatest? You look around. Is it the Speaker of the House? Ah, The president walks in. It's got to be him. And Jesus points to the back and sees the busboy with his head down coming out and says, no, that's the greatest in the kingdom, the one no one notices. He does this with a child in verses 36 and 37. In fact, in the Aramaic language, which was probably what Jesus was using, the word child is the same word as servant. He takes the child and says, you want to know what mighty looks like? You want to know what it means to be glorious and great in my kingdom? Looks like welcoming this child. 
befriending, loving, and walking with people like this child. They annoy us. They run around. Jesus says, put them first. So firstly, to be the greatest is Christ's kingdom of glory. You must first bear your cross like Christ as a servant, even willing to serve the least significant people in the world's eyes. Secondly, we see that bearing the cross for Christ in this world doesn't mean getting the acclaim and applause for your service. You see that in verses 38 through 41. John brings up the ministry of some other guy, we don't know who he is, completely separate from the disciples and their ministry with Jesus. And and you can almost hear his jealousy, can't you? Teacher, we saw someone else casting out demons in your name. We try to stop him because he wasn't one of us. Could you imagine the sense of deflation going on in John's heart too? They had just left the scene of a little child who had a demon, which none of the disciples could cast out. And here is this random guy successfully doing what Jesus' closest disciples couldn't do. What? What? Why is his ministry successful, Jesus? He doesn't follow you like we follow you. He doesn't know you like we know you. He hasn't studied the theology that we've studied or gone to the seminaries that we went to. hasn't read the books and have the books that we have. Jesus, can't you stop him? Jesus says, no, don't stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. He's with us, John. He he may not preach like you do. He may not have read the same books that you have. But clearly he's speaking the truth, right, in Jesus' name. And clearly the Father is blessing his ministry. Now here's the real problem, John. Look there at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In other words, you're still desiring greatness. You've still got your eyes focused on the glory. But real glory only comes through the cross. And most of the time that means simple, unexciting, out of the spotlight ministry. You want to know who's great in my kingdom, John? It's the person who consistently loves through giving a cup of water. There's no bells, no whistles, no book publications, no TV spots for great preaching. It's just loving and serving others in my name. I'm sure a couple folks in Indonesia might know what that looks like. So secondly, to be the greatest in Christ's kingdom of glory, you must first bear your cross like Christ as a servant, even serving simply and humbly Out of the spotlight. Thirdly, greatness in the kingdom, acceptance into Christ's glory, means ultimately dying to self. Look here at the end in verses 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. Uh, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. What's Jesus highlighting here? He's showing us the absolute necessity 
of holiness. The danger of not being holy is clearly laid out. The unquenchable fire of hell. But the way in which he describes our holiness is at once startling. I think also very cross-centered and cross-focused. He describes our fighting sin in the language of cutting off and, and plucking out body parts. Now, he doesn't mean we're to actually cut off our hands. One, because we don't see that literally practiced or literally commanded by any of the apostles in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is using striking language here to make a huge point. If we're to enter into glory, we're going to have to bear the cross inwardly and in our hearts daily. We're to crucify our flesh as Christ was crucified on the cross. And that means dying to self so that our, that our sinful passions are resisted and put down. The language used here of, of cutting off your limbs is really driving us to consider our hearts. Which is why he isn't speaking literally, speaking about cutting off our hands. Let's say your temptation is lust, right? Looking with the eyes at somebody in selfish impurity. You could pluck out your right eye. But here's the problem. I promise you, your lust is still there. And so in your pursuit of righteousness, you pluck out the other eye. Let me ask you, has anything really changed? No. You can't see people to lust after anymore, but I promise you, you'll still lust. You'll still think. You'll still remember. The problem is not your eyes. It's not your hands. Friends, the issue which Jesus is highlighting here is our hearts. Ultimately, our hearts need to be plucked out. We need new hearts. A need that can only be had as we give ourselves to Christ, bearing our crosses with him in faith. So this language now takes on supernatural context. Think about it. What kind of effort has to be put forth for someone to pluck out their eye? Can you imagine that? Standing in the mirror, working up the confidence, the strength, the resolve to literally pluck out your eyeball? Who does that? It's insane almost. I think what Jesus is saying is that to finally enter into that supernatural glory, we need the supernatural strength to do the impossible. We need the supernatural resolve of the gospel to help us to fight sin daily, resisting the natural proclivities of our sinful desires. Being able to fight sin and to die to self looks like being able to pluck out your eye. It's that crazy to the world. It's that impossible without the help of the Spirit. So that's the third way in which we can enter finally into glory. Bearing the cross within ourselves as we allow the gospel to change us, giving us strength to fight sin and fight for holiness. And you notice what effect that has on the culture around us, right? Look look, look there in verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We maintain our saltiness, which serves as a preservative to the culture. Our holiness has an effect on the unholy culture around us. Our walking in righteousness, resisting sin, and putting to death our sinful desires has an impact on the world around us. God giving us special grace, which transforms into a kind of common grace 
for our neighbors and coworkers and loved ones. You all probably know about that. When somebody finds out you're a Christian, at least they do with me, oh, you're a pastor, I'm sorry for cussing around you. I smile on the inside. Like, what is it about me that makes you want to stop cussing? But it's the holiness that they know that's ascribed to Christ making them feel uncomfortable, and that changes things. We'll see in two weeks one of the clearest ways in which this is seen as we talk about marriage and divorce. Look, so we're coming down off of the mountaintop of Christmas, a time when we remember the glorious birth of our Savior. We begin our journey now toward Good Friday and Easter. Easter will come. We love Easter and the glory that that shows us, but before then comes the cross of Good Friday. And this is what Mark 9 is showing us, friends. Our final resurrection into glory, it too will come. If we're in Christ, if we trust in him alone and put our faith in what he's done for us, we'll be with him forevermore in eternal peace and blessedness. But the cross must come first. And the cross is here. Now and every day until then, we live now to die to self, to serve others in in simple obscurity, and to serve and love others is more important than ourselves. Do you know what? In Christ, we can do this with absolute joy. Hebrews tells us that Christ himself, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? Jesus looked forward to that sure glory to come, which he would enjoy again in fullness with the Father and with us there. And looking there, he could bear his cross with joy. So that's why we too, as Hebrews reminds us, can lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely, and we can now run with endurance and with joy that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Friends, as we continue to walk through this valley of suffering, cross-bearing, of humble service, allow the glory which Christ has secured for us in his death on the cross, the glory which will come, fuel us now in our walks. Let's believe in him, clinging to him and what he's done for us on the cross. Allow him to change us from the inside out forevermore. Let's pray.